My wife had that talk with me yesterday <laughs> and didn't give me a snack. I had to do burpees instead, so I'm a little uh, bitter when I have some tension. But uh, welcome, welcome uh, to Grace this weekend. This is a fantastic teachable moment for you uh, to let me teach you about Saturday night services. And so they're at 5 and 645. Jesus will love you more if you come on Saturday night. And if you're in the cafe, you'll get a seat in here on Saturday night. There's parking spots. And right now, for this month only, we're offering 2% off your tithe if you come uh, on Saturday night. So seriously, think that through. And it would uh, be great if you could do that. And I want to remind you, I know we're really pinched right now. Uh, but I want to remind you that in seven or eight weeks, the extension opens. And so there's a bu- there'll be a bunch of seats over there. I was over there uh, this week. It's looking fantastic. And uh, we're excited about that. And so our, our relief is right around the corner. And uh, some of our space problems will uh, be dealt with that way. So keep that in mind. All right, so we're in this series, The Grown Up. And uh, what we're doing in the series is we're looking at uh, the relationships around us and, in essence, asking the question, could I be the grown-up? Could I be, whether I'm supposed to be the one in charge, whether I'm a parent, not a parent, maybe I'm a sibling, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, friend, whatever. If I stepped into this relational circle, could God use me as a catalyst to bring about change and to bring about Christ-likeness in whatever the, the family scenario is that I am in? So we kicked this off last weekend, and <clears throat> we, uh, we said there's three truths about every family. It's inescapable, three truths about every family. First truth is you don't get to pick your family, right? So your family is your family. You didn't ask for it. You just got them. And there's two responses to that. I can be bitter about it, which a lot of us are. Like, how did I get the short end of that stick, right? Or I can be trustful with it. I can look and say, well, God, God somehow in his sovereignty, for some reason, I don't understand it all. I just have faith that he loves me. He formed this family unit and put it together. There's a reason these people are in my lives. The the second truth about every family is every family looks at every other family and thinks the other family is better than their family. It's just the way that it is. So you look at another family and they're just in a highlight moment. You're like, man, their family's awesome. Our family bites. You know, it's just just the way it is. So kids do this. Every teenager looks at another set of parents and like their parents are better than my parents. Every husband looks at another wife and is like, man, she's a lot better at wifing than the other guy is. Yeah, husbands, uh, wives will do that with husbands. Like, man, she got a better husband than I got. I got like a diphthong for a husband. She got a great husband. It's very, very typical that in familiarity, we take each other for granted. We look outside and we daydream. We, we, we come up with things that aren't really realities. Now, that's normal. It's not the end of the world. Here's the danger with it. When I start daydreaming about something different, I quit investing in what I have. When I start daydreaming about something different, I quit investing in what I have. So I have to take those two truths and attach them. If God formed the circle of relationships, then he put me in it for a reason. And I have to ask the question then, if I invested in it, if I stopped wishing for something different than what I've got and started investing in what I have, what could happen? How could that dynamic shift, okay? So those two realities, you get your family, you don't get a choice in it. Second reality, we all daydream about other things. Here's a third reality, and this is the one that that the whole series is being built upon. This is the third truth, ready? Every family has a leader. Every family has a leader. Whether they're supposed to be the leader or not, 
There is someone in every family that when, when those, that group of people, it's step families, it's adoptions, it's biological, just however your family came to be, however that circle of relationships came to be, it's irrelevant, it's just, it's just there. There is somebody in every family that when that group of people is gathered together and that person walks in, the dynamic of that family adjusts to that person. That's true of every family. So that could be a grumpy dad, that could be a crazy mom, that could be an insane sister, that could be a great dad, a great mom, a great brother, right? That could be a five-year-old. Somebody's gonna dominate the culture of that family and the whole idea of grown-up is, well, what if it was you? What if God used you or positioned you or did it on purpose so that you could bring Christ-likeness, you could bring a different dynamic to that group of people and when you walked in, the family elevated, the mind of Christ dominated, would that, could that, should that change the relational dynamic in a family? So it's fascinating when you go to the Bible, there's no family formula in the Bible. There's no like one plus one equals great kid. There's no one plus one equals perfect marriage. There's nothing like that in the Bible. You You won't find it. In fact, you can't even really find an example of a functional family in the Bible, right? It's usually all, it's dysfunction junction there. What God teaches is this. He would say, listen, when I talk to you about family, I'm talking about you and me. You respond to me. Don't respond to them. Respond to me. You and me. And as you respond to me, I will renew or I will change your mind and I will transform your heart And as you respond to me and become more and more like me, that will reflect out to these relationships that you're in, okay? So let's worry about us, and as you worry about us, these will take care of themselves. So it's a really fascinating thing, and it's something that we can actually get our our hands around because I don't have to control other people to make that happen. I can zero in and say, I'm gonna focus on myself becoming who Christ is wants me to be. So we had a big, long conversation about that last weekend. It's out online. If you want to grab it, go to our website, graceohio.org, and you can listen to it. You can watch it. You get a, a podcast for free through iTunes there. You can sign up. It'll go to your phone every week. If you don't know how to do that, ask your eight-year-old. They'll set up for you, and uh, <clears throat> you can kind of catch up with that. This weekend, I want to advance the conversation a little bit, and I want to advance the conversation by teaching you a question, okay, a question. So when you leave this weekend, I want you to remember this one question, and this question will position you relationally to bring the mind of Christ into the family dynamic. This is a powerful question. This question will alter every relationship you have if you say it, ask it, and mean it, and somebody asked me after the last service, do I have to act on it? I'm like, yes, now you're not allowed at church anymore because you asked me that question, <laughs> right? So it's, <clears throat> yes, you have to act on it, but it's a, it's a great question, and it will, it will change every relationship that you have. You ask this question at work, it'll change your relationships at work. You ask this question to your boss, you'll get promoted for sure. If you're a boss and you ask this question to your, your employees, they will stay with you forever. They will never leave you nor forsake you. They will be with you forever. If you, you bring this question into your marriage, you ask this to your spouse, and, and they will think you're the greatest thing that's, that's ever happened, right? If you're, if you're a kid, if you're a teenager, you ask this question to your parents. Before you ask this question to your parents, you should go ahead and pre-call 911 because they will have a heart arrhythmia if you, if you ask them this question. This question can change churches. This question, if it was on a global 
uh, geopolitical scale. It could change the fate of nations. It will stop a fight. If you ask this question, it'll stop a fight. I know, because it worked for me Friday. So it, it'll, it'll, it'll work. It's a, it's a question that God asked us. It's a question that we should always ask God. If you can lock on to this one question, it will position you in such a way that you're the grown-up, right? And it will cause the family dynamic or whatever relational dynamic you want to attach it to to change. Are you ready? Here's the question. You prepared? Are you taking notes? Here we go. The question is this. When you look at someone in your life, look at them and ask this question, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? You start asking that question to people <clears throat> and your relationships will change very, very quickly and very, very deeply. How can I serve you? Now, this isn't a self-help question. This is, I didn't get this off of Oprah. This came right from the Bible. This is actually a mindset that Jesus has toward us, and the Bible tells us that we are to have toward each other. How can I serve you? Let me show you where it's at here. Grab your Bibles if you got them. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs, and it's page 819 in those Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, page 819. If you're out in the cafe, there's some Bibles back at the information desk if you want to use one of those. If you're electronic, we use the version app, Y-O-U version. Just hit it, hit live, and the Bible passage is there. The notes are there. You can email questions from there, the whole nine yards. Philippians chapter 2. Page 119, U version. Let me read the context, and then we'll go pick it apart a little bit, okay? So verse one, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, and humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. And your relationship with one another had the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the mindset of Jesus. When Jesus approaches us, he approaches us on every level of our humanity, right? So he approaches us spiritually, emotionally, physically. And his mindset, in essence, Jesus comes to us and says, how can I serve you? He took on the very nature of a servant. He says in another part of the Bible, Jesus didn't come to be served, he came to serve. I'm going to come and do for you. You actually can't do for me. You, you can't buy your way into heaven, you can't forgive your own sins, you can't get your act together enough. You don't really have anything to offer me. I have everything that I offer you, so how can I serve you? And that was his mindset. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself, he became obedient even unto the cross, all for us, because Jesus would look at you and me and in essence say, how can I serve you? What, what, what needs to happen in your life and how can I take the best of me and give it to you to cause that need to be met? 
Well, the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote the book of Philippians, is speaking on God's behalf, and he grabs hold of that, and he says, actually, that is the same way that you're supposed to interact with each other. Look back at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, like Christ, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what was his mindset? His mindset was, how can I serve you? How can I take the best of me and give it to you to, to cause your needs to be met, right? Now, guys, in this passage and in that question is, is a huge key that will help us in all kinds of relationships. So let's dissect this a little bit and pull it apart and kind of get the, the meat off of the bone, okay? And we'll start with verse three, this is what Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's just stop here for a second. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's start by focusing on that word nothing. So when we read the Bible in English, it's always important to remember that the English Bible was translated out of the Greek language. And if you know anything about translation, you know that sometimes when you're translating a concept there isn't a comparable word in the other language that matches the, the concept. So you kind of do the best you can with it. And that word nothing there is an example of that. The word nothing, do nothing, doesn't capture fully what, what God said originally in the Greek language, especially to our modern Western ear, because the word nothing to us is a, is a blow-off word. It, it almost has no weight to it whatsoever in our, in our culture, right? So if you went up to one of your kids and said, uh, hey, what'd you do today? Nothing. See? What happened in school today? Nothing. See? It, it, why is if you talk to your husband, hey, what, what'd you and your friend Bill talk about when you guys went out last night? Eh, nothing. Right? And that, by the way, is good communication from a husband. At least he answered you. Right? So it's... <laughs> The, it, the word just doesn't have any weight in our culture, so that's why we need to push into it a little bit. So when, when you push that back into Greek, there's actually a concept behind that word, and it's the concept that sets the tone of the whole passage, and here's the concept. When, when we translate it, do nothing, the concept behind that is this. Don't even think thoughts motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, you put it in a broader context, instead have the mindset of Jesus. So nothing is predicated on the mindset of Jesus. So when Jesus was thinking about stepping out of heaven and coming to earth, born of a virgin, lived, never sinned, died, was our substitute, rose again, when he was thinking about that, there was nothing in him that was of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, he wasn't motivated by any kind of feedback to him or kickback to him. There was nothing, there wasn't even a thread of selfishness in him. He was in no way possible, no way at all, working the angles or trying to paint the corners of the plate. So when Jesus was thinking about giving himself for us, he was thinking about our needs. The kickback of that or the feedback of that wasn't even something that crossed his mind. So he wasn't thinking, you know, if I go down here and I live and I die, they will build all kinds of buildings with my name on it. They will make some movies about me. 
there will be some really bad television produced in my name, right? I'll have a best-selling book. He had, he, nothing, nothing crossed his mind. There was no idea that if I make this investment, I will get this in return. So the apostle Paul says, when I look at the people around me, I'm to have the mindset, the heart position of Jesus, and I'm to do nothing. There is to be no motive in me that reflects or is tied to selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, all the value is put on you. My interests are set aside, your interests dominate, all value is transferred to you, no value is withhold, withheld for myself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, what are those two things that he's telling us about, that God's like, don't do these things, okay? So let, let's pick it apart a little bit. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition. The, the modern kind of cultural word that would match the concept of selfish ambition would be our concept of rivalry. There is to be no rivalry between you and another person. So what's a rivalry? A rivalry is not a moral right or a moral wrong, right? So I, I, belie- I believe you should kill people. I believe you should not. That's not a rivalry. That's a, that's a truth. There's a moral right or a moral wrong. A rivalry is opinion. I believe Ohio State is better than Michigan, right? That's a rivalry. There's no actual weight. There's no actual, it doesn't really matter if Ohio State has beat Michigan like nine out of the last 11 years, right? It doesn't really matter. It's just that you have a bad team, I'm just saying. But right, so it's like, but there's a, there's a rivalry, but our lives don't actually get altered because of the opinion that we drew. We've just decided to have an opinion on something, okay? Now, your opinions are fine. Opinions are amoral, right? I want Mexican for lunch. I want Chinese. I want Mexican. I want Chinese. I hope he ends early before the chapel lets out. We can't get into the Chinese place, right? So it's a, it's a rivalry. I have this opinion. Well, we had Mexican last week. Well, I hate Chinese. It makes me throw up. Well, your face makes me throw up. It's a, it's a rivalry. And what happens in rivalry is we have these amoral opinions that descend into sin, right? So we're arguing about something that has no consequence, it's not right or wrong, but all of a sudden bitterness and frustration and harsh words and, and cursing comes into play and my heart is all jacked up because I didn't get my way. Now when I move forward in selfish ambition, what I've done is I've placed all value on me. I want what I want. Well, I want what I want. Well, now we got ourselves a problem. And Paul comes in and he says, wait a minute, you won't find this with Christ. There was, it, it didn't even exist with him. And you're to do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of rivalry, because it, it tosses out the mindset of Christ that would allow your relationships to function in a healthy way. Now this happens all the time. If you chase relational tension to the ground, what you're gonna find a bunch of the time is you're gonna find selfish ambition. You're gonna find a rivalry there. It happens in friendships, it happens in churches, it happens in work, 
And it happens all the time in family relationships, right? Now, I want to I wanna key in as an example, but this, is gonna, this will go broadly for all of us because we're all in relationships with somebody, but I want to key in as an example on blended families, okay? Last census said that 40% of American families are blended on some level. So half of us here this weekend have some level of a blend somewhere in our family where there's non-biological people that are now a part of our family. And when you look at the tension in a blended family, what you'll find a bunch of times is you're gonna find selfish ambition. Is at the root of the conflicts in a blended family. What does it look like and how does it show up? It's things like this, which set of siblings wins? See, he's got her, his kids and she's got her kids and, and these kids need this and these kids need So who's, who's it gonna be? Who's gonna win? Because they really need to do this and they really need to do this. There's only so much money. There's only so much time in the world. And a rivalry will kick up, see? Does the new wife win or do the old kids win? Well, you're always with her and you never have time for us anymore. You don't even think about us. And you better listen to me. I am your wife. I am your wife right? And a rivalry, a competition starts between the children and the person who's supposed to be the grown-up in the room. There's dads that are trying to outdo each other, right? Because the new dad makes more money than the old dad, and and now he did this for the kids, and I got to do this for the kids, and there's a rivalry going on. There's a selfish ambition. Stepchildren trying to gain control over a new situation. I'm going to manipulate it because I didn't ask to be in this place anyways. And so I'm going to make everybody miserable, right? And it's a rivalry. And you look at a blended family, all of a sudden you're going to find that. I want attention. I want attention. I want input. I want input. I, we use, we've always done things this way and she came along. And now I have to do things this way. And there's a rivalry. There's a selfish ambition that's there and the relational tension can become unbearable. So what do you do with it? This is all of a sudden where Philippians chapter two shows up in very real time in your family room. Like I, I need a solution to this problem. What would God have to say? And God would say, well, here's the thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Transfer value, put value on the other person above yourself. Now, let me, if you got a blended family, I'm going to give you five things that's going to help you real quick here, okay? Five things that will help you to defang selfish ambition and will help you get the family to run a little bit smoother, okay? Here you go, right? You can take notes if you want. Number one, clear communication. Clear communication in a blended family is huge. What does that mean? That means expectations clearly defined and embraced for flexibility. So you're fighting over who's going to do what for Thanksgiving, one of you could say, how can I serve you? You know, what I, what I really want is I just want the family together one day, actually don't care if it's on Thanksgiving or not. Um, could we the weekend before gather and we'll have, we'll have a Thanksgiving? See, I have an expectation, I have a desire, let's define it, and I'll be the flexible one. I'll be the flexible because we're talking opinions now. We're, ta- we're not talking about moral rights, moral wrongs. We're talking about opinions. So it helps a ton. It defangs the rivalry. Clear expectations, clearly defined, embrace the flexibility. Second thing that will help with a blended family is this, parent-specific discipline. Parent-specific discipline. In a blended family, 
the biological parent should enact discipline on the biological children. The biological parent should enact discipline on the biological children. So step mom or dad, you get together with biological mom or dad, you may have to get your heads together a little bit, but when you walk out of that room, the biological parent should go and enact discipline with the biological child, okay? Don't be a wimp and put the step parent in that position. Well, you're the one that's got a problem with them. I don't know. Oh, come on. You should be smacked now, okay? It's a no-win situation when the step parent has to discipline. So parent-specific discipline will help to defang rivalry. Third thing, make unique investments. Make unique investments. This is the deal. Step parent, mom, dad, doesn't matter. Step parent, listen. The biological parent will always have a unique God-created relationship with their biological children. You cannot change that. It's, it, that's the way God built us. So don't become jealous of it. Well, you, you always preferred your own kids over mine. Of course they do. Right? So let that happen. Now, we're, ta- we're not talking about crossing sin lines. Okay, we're talking about practical opinion things. So let that happen to a degree. Right? Uh, if you're divorced, stop mouthing off about your ex in front of the, their children because your kids don't care anymore how much you don't like their father because they love their daddy and they want a relationship with their daddy and your kids actually just think you should grow up. That's what they're thinking. So you don't, you don't put them in there. Let those relationships play out. Now, if there's abuse, you, you're grown-ups. Like you can do the math on it. There's exceptions to the rule. But as a rule, let it play out. Why? Because I am defanging the rivalry. I'm no longer trying to get my kids to love me and respect me more than they did their dad who left us. Defanged. I'm putting their interest above my own and transferring value from myself to my children. And this relationship is important to them. Ready? Fourth thing. Adults, remember that your kids didn't ask for this family. Your kids didn't ask for this family. If you're in a blended situation, right, they didn't ask to be in that blended situation. That five-year-old, that 10-year-old, that 15-year-old, that 25-year-old, if they had their heart's desire, their biological mom would be married to their biological dad, and all the biological siblings would be the only people living in the house. That's what they want. So you have to be sympathetic to that. That is actually a good desire, right? That's a God-given desire. So when that longing comes out, be sympathetic about it. They're not rejecting anybody in that situation. They're responding the way that God wired them to respond. Here's the fifth thing. Ready? Kids, this one's for you. Children, teenagers, or if you're 30, it doesn't matter, right? This one's for you. A child's job, especially if you're like a minor, a child's job in life is to love and obey the, the adults in their life, to respect and obey the adults in their life. That's from the Bible directly. Boom. Okay? Well, I don't like my stepmom. Nobody asked. You need to respect and obey her. She's the wicked witch of the east. I'm sure she is. I won't even argue it with you. You need to respect and obey her. 
my stepdad, he's a diphthong. I know, I know him, he is, right? You need to respect and obey him. Why? Because when you rebel and you mouth and you make life miserable, you are transferring value to yourself and it doesn't matter if you're 10 or you're 15 or if you're 20, if you're a follower of Jesus, all this applies to you. Okay? Now you take those, and that's just blood of family. You can get it. You can take all that and put it in any, any relationship you want. See, it's all the same principles, but with the blended family, they, it, it's just looking and saying, this is Philippians chapter two, and this could show up in my life this way, and this is actually the way that Jesus would think. Jesus would think in these things. And we're talking about selfish ambition, rivalry. We're not talking moral rights, moral wrongs. These are different conversations. We get very stubborn about moral rights and moral wrongs, right? There's no give. We're talking opinions. I wish my life was this way, but it's not, and it's not going to be. I'm sorry. I, I genuinely am. So what are we gonna do? Can you change the dynamic? Can you look forward to going home instead of dreading it? Can you shift the playing field a little bit, and you can in very dynamic ways with a question, how can I serve you? Why well, is that question so powerful? Because it's the mindset of Christ. And now Christ-likeness is coming to play, right? So selfish ambition, all selfish ambition is, is a person or a group of people having the mindset that they should be served instead of being the servants. That's all it is. And if we invert that and say, you know what, I want the mind of Christ who asks the questions in essence, can I, how can I serve you? It changes all the night, it shifts all the rules around and you get a different outcome. Now, do nothing out of selfish ambition was one of the things that Paul said. The other thing he said was, or vain conceit, right? Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit. What is vain conceit? Push it back into the Greek and pull it out into our modern vernacular again. This would be the idea. Vain conceit simply means empty glory. Vain conceit means empty glory. And the idea behind empty glory is that I will win something that's not a moral right or moral wrong, it's just my opinion. I will win at all costs. I will fight to the relational death so that I can be right. And in that process, I will achieve for myself empty glory. So you're right. Congratulations, right? Now this is a big deal because this drives a lot of arguments. Let me ask you this question. Can you be right and be wrong at the same time? Can you be right and be wrong at the same time? Sure you can, why? because there are greater truths in the Bible. Did you know that? I think he might be a heretic. He's saying there's greater, no, there's greater truths in the Bible. I got that from a guy named Jesus. Somebody came to Jesus and said, hey, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Because there's a bunch of commandments in the Bible. All well, truth is God's truth. You're right about that, but there's greater truth. Somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus looked at him and he said, here's the greatest commandment, uh, there's two of them. The greatest commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the greatest truth in the Bible. My love for God, my love for each other. So I can be right and wrong at the same time. I can shout you down with truth. You know in the Bible, Bible says a wife's supposed to listen to her husband. 
See? Is that true? Kinda. Not the way you said it. Why not? Because you're supposed to love her. And loving her is actually a lot more important than her listening to you. What? Yeah. I'm right. Yeah, you're wrong too. Mm -mm. Okay? Can you be right and wrong? My boss... He had this project. I told, I told him six months ago he was a moron for doing it. And I was right. It didn't work. And I told him I was right. When I was packing my box up and leaving the office and going to the unemployment line, I was right. You win. You win. What'd you get for it? Half, half my paycheck for up to 90 days. <laughs> right? Can you be right and wrong at the same time? Sure you can. Because you can be right at the expense of love. Now, remember, we're not talking about moral truths. Moral truths are non-negotiable. We're talking about opinions. We're talking about rivalries. I want Mexican. I want Chinese. Okay? And you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. You can, you can absolutely prove your wife wrong. See? You can prove her wrong. You can be right all the time. You can win every argument with your wife. All you got to do is talk faster and louder than she does. It's easy, right, to do. And you can win for yourself a miserable marriage. Congratulations, you win. Enjoy the couch. You can shout a teenager down. You can shout them down. You can talk all around them. You know bigger words than they do. You can control them because you're in charge. It's my roof. And you can, be as, you can win every argument with the teenagers and you can wind up with no relationship with them. Congratulations. You can control a child. The little older they are, the better, the easier it is. Just pick them up and move them. Simple, easy peasy. Duct tape them, you do whatever you need to do. Right? And you can wind up never demonstrating to them who a loving God is and how they want to interact with them. So they resent the truth of the Bible because it's always used to control and belittle them. You can be right and you can be wrong all day long. Now what you gotta do here in, the, in this passage is you attach these two concepts. Do nothing, don't even be motivated by what? Selfish ambition, what? Rivalries, empty stuff, worthless stuff. See, it's not more right, more wrong, it's just I want my way and you want your way. Do have nothing to do with selfish ambition or vain conceit. Because when I execute life with selfish ambition, what I will gain for myself is vain conceit. See? There's a rivalry. I won. Good for you. You won the argument. Now you have no relationship. Why? Because you stripped value from that other human being and hoarded it to yourself. And Paul comes back and he says, no. No, that is not the mindset of Christ. Have nothing to do with selfish ambition, vain conceit. Rather, here's the third way. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, see, have the same mindset as Christ. What would be a way that you could quickly and easily interject the mindset of Christ into any relational given situation? If only there was a question that you could ask. How can I serve you? This is what Christ did. He did not come to compete with us. He did not come to prove us wrong. He did not come 
to knock us down a peg. See, he didn't do that. He didn't need to do that. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 17, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why didn't Jesus come into the world to condemn the world? Because we condemned ourselves. He didn't need to do it. He didn't come and say, yeah, you're going to hell. If you do this for me, maybe I'll let you out. He looked and said, how can I serve you? There's a crisis. The crisis is that our relationship is broken and there's a passion. I don't want to have a horrible relationship with you. I want to have a thriving, vibrant relationship with you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to serve you. How can I serve you? How can I take the best of me and give it to you so that the relational dynamic can be changed? Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, it's the thief, it's the devil. That's another word for the devil. It's the thief, it's the devil who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. It's the evil one, it's the devil who functions out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. I'm gonna defeat you, I'm gonna take from you, I'm gonna destroy you, I'm gonna strip you of your value, I'm gonna assign it to me. And anyone who functions in that paradigm is thinking through the mindset of Satan himself. Christ says, my mindset's completely different. I came that you can have life and life to the fullest. I came to serve you. I came to give you. I humbled myself. I took on the very nature of a servant. I went to the cross for you. I transferred value from me and I gave it to you. I put your interest above my own. And when you do that, you become a life giver. That question, how can I serve you? That's a grown-up question, and grown-ups are life givers. Children take, grown-ups give. And when I look at the relationships around me, I look and say, well, I wanna be the grown-up, I'll be the catalyst, I wanna be the one used by God. I will go, and when I ask that question, how can I serve you, that's a life-giving question. You don't, you don't walk into a situation and go off about serving people and have people walk away mad at you. It's a life-giving question. And so when I walk into any relational situation, regardless of how I got into it, because my family's my family and I can't really do anything about it, I can breathe life into them by bringing the mindset of Jesus. And the mindset of Jesus then dominates the relational dynamic wherever I am. When I go into work and I look at my boss who's having a bad day and I say, you know what, can I, how can I serve you? See? It will change that relational dynamic. When my employees are fried and shot, I look at them and say, you know what, how can, how can, I, can I serve you? Can I, can I take some weight off of you for the afternoon so you can, can, you tell, can I bury your burden a little bit? It will change that relational dynamic. And you can bring that into any situation. Take it to school. Take it home to your parents, right? It, you, you can do that. Husbands, wives can do that. When your husband comes home grumpy, and he's like, I can't believe it. And my boss, he's a dipthong. And he's the biggest idiot I ever met. And your normal reaction is what? 
Why do you even come home? You're so grumpy. This house is so tense. I don't even know. And by the way, that's what your husband hears. That's the noise that comes into his ear. You don't hear a word you're saying, right? What's going to happen? That relationship is going to digress. And he comes home, oh, I'm so, no, I both, he's an idiot. And you look at him and say, honey, sorry you had a bad day. Is, is there a way that I can serve you today? You, he will pass out. <laughs> he will be putty in your hands, right? Because you change the dynamic. When you come home and your wife's been at home all day with little kids and, and you walk in the door and she's like, take the baby and there's diary and I have the diaper and I don't know and this one's been up and this boy and I, I, haven't, I haven't said a complete sentence in four days and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I just, and that's, by the way, that's what a stay-at-home mom uses. That's actually the thoughts that she's capable of by the end of the day that she's staying home with her kids. It's an incredibly hard job. In fact, every husband ought to stay home for four days by him himself with his own children. And when your wife comes home, you'll be like, I don't know, I don't know. I'm, beg, I'm begging you, let me go to work, please. I, I so want to be beaten at my job. Anything to have a complete thought, right? You look at her and instead of looking at her and saying, hey, what about me? What about me? You're all about these kids, you worship these kids. What about me? I have needs. I had a tough day at work. You want to know stress? I'll tell you stress. I'll tell it to you as soon as I'm done watching Sports Center. <laughs> if you looked at your wife and said, honey, how can I serve you? Can I, you know what, what if I take the kids? I'll do dinner, I'll get them baths, I'll get them tucked in. Why don't you go out with a friend or grab some coffee and have a complete thought and use grown-up words? <laughs> Would that help you? She will fall in love with you all over again because you just change your relational dynamic. Bring it into any part of your, bring this, bring this question into your sex life. Yeah, bring it into your sex life. When you, well, I'm in a mood. Well, I'm not. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen you for days and you haven't talked to me. And I just don't, I don't even know if I know you anymore. <laughs> Man, I was, you know, I just, I haven't seen you for days. <laughs> right? And if the question changed, see, how can I serve you? You're going to take that one home with you. Okay? How can I serve you? Well, how can I serve you? Yeah, I know. I know what's going to go home with you. Right? It alters everything. Bring it into your finances. Your wife runs the bills. You come home. She's at the door waiting. We all, we all know that's a bad sign. When she's waiting, you should have gone through the back, right? I'm telling you, always go through the back right? Get the heads up from the kids before you go and meet her. And she's waiting for you. And she's got the credit card statement in her hand. And she's like, what is this? What is a big Bubba long driver? And we can't afford this. And why did you buy it? And instead of it's my money and I work, if you respond to that and said, you know what? How can I serve you? Well, honey, I'm trying to keep us on. You're right. What? What's a way that I could relieve this stress? Well, what if you just left the credit card at home and talked to me before you bought something? You know what? I'll do that for you. I would like to serve you in this area of our finances. Say that to your wife. And she'll look at you and she'll be like, well, maybe I can serve you. <laughs> I mean, <that's, laughs> right? It changes everything. Why? It's not because it's self-help. 
It's not because it's a tricky little question. It's because you just brought the mindset and the heartbeat of Jesus into this relationship. And all of a sudden, there's Christ-likeness breaking out. And it shifts because you shifted the value from yourself to the people that God has placed in your life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, do this instead in humility. In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The band's gonna settle in. And as they do, let me, let me just walk you through this. Guys, you, you have to take something like this. You've got to drill down on it. It can't just linger out there or it doesn't get deep enough to cause life change. Right? So this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that life change starts with repentance. It starts with repentance. Repentance is a word that people have used to beat up other people for a long time. And it's actually not, it's not an aggressive word. This is what repentance means. Repentance just means turn around. It's literally what it means, turn around. So it would play out like this. I'm thinking like everybody else thinks. I'm thinking about how to put myself first, how to make myself number one, how do I get my day to go my way, how do I, make things, how do I get my relationships to work the way that I want them to work. I'm thinking of valuing myself. I didn't realize that that's actually the way the devil thinks. I have the mindset of Satan. I don't want that. So I just heard this truth from God. You know what? I repent. I'm gonna turn to that truth instead of walk away from it. God, I'm sorry, I didn't even know. I didn't realize I was doing this. I repent, would you forgive me, would you cleanse me, and would you give me your heart and your mind? That's what repentance is. It's looking at God and saying, God, I I wanna take in from you Change my heart. The, the, the Bible says that the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything starts with my soul and works up. So change my heart. Change my soul. Cause me to reflect you, to take in you. And when I do that, it'll all spill out into my relationships with other people. So you have to repent. You have to drill down. So you have to, you have to think of things like this. Where does selfish ambition show up in your life? And when you, when you see where it shows up, ask God to show you. He'll help you with it. Identify it and repent of it and put the opposite in the mind of Christ. Where does vain conceit show up in your life? And when you see it, repent of it. Okay? And God will cleanse it. He's faithful just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you, you reach for the opposite. You allow God to download the opposite into your life. That's the only way this change is going to happen. It's the only way it's going to happen. And it's one of the great gifts that the Bible gives us. God teaches us not just what to change to, but he teaches us how to change. And when I repent, I'm I'm working on the deepest levels of my heart, and life works from there up, from the soul up, is how life plays. As we take a little bit of time and sing these songs, and maybe you can bow your head and pray and think, Do that, drill down and give God a license 
And when he shows you selfish ambition and he shows you vain conceit, surrender it. And ask God to give you humility, to value others, and to birth in you in a fresh way the mindset of Christ Jesus.